Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute, the only podcast in the world to review every minute of that 1971 Warner Brothers classic, Dirty Harry. I'm one of your hosts, John, and I'm joined with another co-host, Trent. Hello there. How are you, Trent? Oh, not too bad today. We're heading into the warmer months, so life is good. Thank God. We have a repeated guest. Um, He's a a pacemaker recipient. Uh, He's a stand-up comedian and uh, host of the Tales from the Mind Boat podcast, Trav Nash. Hey, you can call me a repeated offender, maybe, or maybe not. (laughs) I don't know if that should be on a podcast. (laughs) That as it may be, we are delighted to join uh, as another guest, a motorcycle enthusiast, a man who rightly chastised me for not being familiar with Australian classic films, one part of Mad Max Minute, Rick Ingham. Hello, Rick. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Are you a big Dirty Harry fan? <laughs> okay, I have a bit of a confession to make. I watched this movie for the first time just a day ago in preparation for this guest spot. Wow. <gasps> oh. I know. Shocking, isn't it? Did you like it? <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, and I did not expect to do so. I was aware of this movie you know cultural osmosis is a thing you know you (laughs) you hear about movies and Clint Eastwood in particular and I was not aware of the finer points of this movie and there was a lot more in it and a lot more than I found enjoyable than I expected so first of all I have to thank you for uh, putting me in a situation where you forced me to watch the movie (laughs) even if it does sound terrible saying forced me to, to watch the movie it was our pleasure. We we find a lot of people think they've seen the movie, but they've maybe seen a scrap or two of one of the sequels, um, which is right. understandable. I mean, people love the, the 44 Magnum line, misquoting it all the time, um, and they assume make my day is quickly to follow. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, one and all. Today we are reviewing Minute 92. The minute begins with the school bus continuing to drive down a freeway off-ramp and ends with that same school bus about to bump a VW Beetle off the road. What did you think of this minute, Rick? What stood out for you? What stood out to me most of all is the fact that Clint Eastwood jumps off... Well, okay, Clint Eastwood probably isn't the one doing the jumping per se, but the fact that Harry Callahan jumps off of a trestle onto a moving vehicle. I mean, sure, we've seen him run around a lot in this movie, but this is so like spectacularly acrobatic, and it blew me away. The fact that this, you know, San Francisco detective is now jumping off of things onto moving vehicles, and I really appreciated being here to talk about it because <laughs> that is probably one of the most Mad Max things in this movie. One of the IMDb quotes says. Clint Eastwood is at his peak just being a cool-looking motherfucker. Do you think he... Is this the first ever superhero landing, Trev, in a film? It's pretty good. He sticks it pretty well. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure that is Clint Eastwood. He'd be like, I'm doing my own stunts. Well, apparently it is. Well, is it? Uh, it is him, yeah. Actually, you know, the first superhero landing I can think of in cinema... What? Um, ...was actually in a, in a 1943 serial of Captain Marvel, hmm. now, now known as Shazam. Oh. And the, the revolutionary way they made him fly was they had a dummy, a mannequin going on a couple of wires... And when he would land, they would just have him jump in off a trampoline into the screen, and that was him landing. It's very Buster Keaton-ish. Yeah. Very cool. In the novelization, Harry's not as badass. He sort of sits down and dangles before jumping off. He doesn't just jump... Um, <laughs> um, I like how it's sunny again. The last few minutes of the bus um, going down Francis Drake, it's been overcast, and uh, the sun came out. And I like how the driver, <laughs> Scorpio says to the driver, keep right, which of course is a prescient instruction to Clint's, Clint Eastwood's future politics. <laughs> how did Harry know, Rick, how did Harry, how did he predict that Scorpio would, um, would take a detour? He just predicted that Scorpio would do something unorthodox. Why do you think, is Harry just a, a magician? No. I didn't write down the the dialogue leading up to this scene, but didn't Scorpio specifically say where he was going in the scene? I don't remember this being a, a detour on the way to the airport. That's right. He said he's he's going to the airport. That's where the plane is to be ready. But our previous guest who grew up in San Francisco said he's deliberately... Santa Rosa Airway, uh, like uh, airport is straight ahead. You just have to follow this road. You don't have to make any detour. And any anyone, <laughs> maniac or not, in San Francisco would know that. So, is it just Harry's intuition, Trav? I think he just thought this would be a better climax than, like, at this <laughs> old barn. So, um, let's go left here, because he's like, I don't think we can afford the airport and, you know, too much security. So, let's go to an old barn. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, go left. There's a creepy barn. Let's do it. <laughs> That's a good place to bring. And there is a lot to say for just experience for uh, a detective who's been around the city so many times. He would just know instinctively. Well, OK, he says he's going to the airport, but he's also got a school bus. Hey, I bet he's going to go here and I'm just going to go hang out on an overpass just because he just, <laughs> just has that intuition. I'm I'm fully team intuition here. <laughs> I do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I got here. I just <laughs> jumped, just jumped on a bus and see where it took me. What's well, it? And uh, just to sort of mirror something, because John's been desperate for the last two weeks to find Dirty Harry and Mad Max links. Yes. Desperate, desperate. It's a, there's a road. It's no longer with us in the first Mad Max called the Maltby Bypass, oh. and you see Max standing on top of the the Maltby Bypass as I think it's Johnny. Bo- no, Johnny's already gone. I think. Um, toe cutter drive underneath yeah. it. Such a shame that's gone. Was that a good part of the movie for you, uh, Rick, in Mad Max? Oh yeah, when the the one part of that first movie where Mad act or where Max actually gets to be mad instead of just on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we used to when I was a kid, we used to drive under that bridge all the time. And when I first saw the first Mad Max, I'm like, oh my gosh, we go into this like every weekend to visit family and stuff. So, it's very cool. Before we talk about the the Trestle Bridge jump down, I don't think we can sing the praises of the bus driver enough, uh, Marcella Platt, 
Um, last minute we were talking that she's like a, um, a supervising teacher and uh, Scorpio's, a, you know, the trainee teacher having difficulty with the new kids and he's trying to get her help and he's, she's... <laughs> no, nope, you deal with it. Do you, do you like um, Marcella Platt in this role as a bus driver, Rick? Oh, my gosh. She is such a standout performance yeah. in this role because she's in a very difficult situation and she's playing the hell out of it and it's excellent and it and i feel really bad about what happens to her <laughs> hopefully she survives the later uh crash into the into the the pile um she's yeah. like nurse ratchet like but a more <laughs> mousy like parallel universe version do you want to know something really really nerdy about her what? her second last credit it was in 1994 and it was a voice in the game King's Quest Seven. Oh wow! Really? She played three different roles in it. That's amazing. Yeah, I, those games were incredible. Was that just eight? Was that eight bit, sixteen bit? Like, would have no, sounded been really more modern good by that point. Yeah, that, that was sort of like ahead of the game. Sierra, the company that did that. Rick, do you have any um, any great childhood memories of being in a yellow school bus? To us, it's so exotic. These American pencils that are. These pencil-looking vehicles. Do you have any funny stories? Were you ever kidnapped on a bus? Hmm? All right. Well, I can't say I was ever kidnapped on the bus, but I uh, rode a bus from age six to age eleven. No, uh, six to age eleven, and then when I moved from the first uh, five years of my schooling up to the the next level, I was close enough to the school that I didn't have to ride one. But the fun thing about these buses is that, as you could probably see, they don't have very good uh, heating and air conditioning. And when I worked as a security guard at a, an amusement park, we would get school groups coming in on these school buses all of the time, and they would sit out in the parking lot and they would bake. And so you'd get these 40 to 50 kids running around an amusement park all day, and they're dehydrated as hell. And so they get back on these buses, and the EMTs that work at the park are like, you got to get this thing cooled down. And the bus driver is just sitting there shrugging like there's nothing I can do until we start moving and open up the windows. So these <laughs> things, they're very effective at moving people around, not very effective at being comfortable. That's why the fat kid wants to go to the ice cream factory. Because mm. this thing is probably a rolling oven if they don't have those windows open. Yeah. You know, in nearly 30 years of watching this film, this scene, I never ever thought about the air conditioning. Now I'm going to see nothing but sweaty people. <laughs> I can feel the stuffiness of it right now. <laughs> like a, a dog in a hot car, like yeah. Oh man, just made it so much more unpleasant. This is good. Thank you. You've added a new value of this film to me. <laughs> Trent, do you remember we went on a school excursion to Swan Hill yes. or somewhere? And I think. Or maybe it was going to sports pavilions and the bus driver, like, was charging everyone 50 cents if they said bus rather than coach. No. We're on a, we're on a coach. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't recall that. <laughs> I, I would love that. Yeah. Maybe it was just a deal for you. Like. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I was all alone. Anyway. Uh, Trav. <laughs> I'm actually th just sorry. I was just having a look. Speaking of Mad Max, the where we're sitting right now, the closest location in the first film is where the goose drives away from the nightclub. Where's that, Chasers? Was it? Uh, was it just off Chapel Street? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's about a 10 minute, 15 minute drive from here. Yeah. The area is very much built up since the movie. 
Uh, yeah, I think it's an office building or something now. Do you like the character of Scorpio, Rick? Um, one of our previous guests said, quote, he's threatening yet pathetic. And he's just, he's manic enough as he needs to be to move the plot along. And we shouldn't be distracted. This is, this is Clint Eastwood's movie. This is Dirty Harry's movie. And we just need someone to tick the plot along. And Scorpio is just that Warner Brothers cartoon, Tasmanian devil we need to get things progressing. Do you, do you like the character of Scorpio? Uh, I don't know if you can necessarily like Scorpio because he is so despicable in the things that he chooses to do. I think he's a good foil for Harry. Because for all of Scorpio's manic energy, Harry is so the polar opposite of that. And you really need a, to make a DC Comics reference, a Joker to Harry's Batman. (laughs) He's very Viking Phoenix, Joker. That's what he seems like to me. I haven't seen the film, but from the trailer, he looks like he's got that manic energy and the sort of passive aggressive nature that just goes all wild at the end yeah to make another reference to the Mad Max movies I see Scorpio as who Tim Burns as Johnny the boy could have been if (laughs) Max didn't catch up to him at the end of that first movie that's a good point actually another guest said there's no like Scorpio starts off it seems like a mastermind having a plan and the promise that it could be like the real Zodiac killer with with clues to follow and stuff. He's he's a sniper methodically choosing targets. And then he, now he's resorted to hostage taking the lowest form of crime ever that usually takes place last minute at a bank robbery or something. And he's at best a number 10 henchman. And I suppose Mad Max from my memory has a lot of henchmen in his gang, the Tokata's gang, or could you see spinoffs of of the character of the bad guys in the first movie? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I've never thought about that before. Definitely the from the new movie that Oh what a lovely day. He could definitely have a spin off. Like origin story. Oh, Scorpio pre- could definitely be a war boy. Yeah. Yeah. All he needs is a haircut. <laughs> Apparently this was a, a miserable day for shooting as Andy Robinson was concerned, because he's a he was sort of an East Coast pacifist and uh yeah, he didn't like having to uh rough up the kids. And of course, a director's nightmare is Directing Kids or Animals, or Andy Robinson. <laughs> Look at his suit. Trav, what do you think about that brown suit? Is it, does it make you want to puke? Uh, I reckon, he, he Clint owns it. Like, I think he's one of the few men that can actually look good in a horrible brown suit. <laughs> but he, like, the glasses, it matches his hair. Like, and, and who wears a suit like that to, to, like, jump off a bridge onto a bus? Like... You'd think he'd wear shit like shorts, pair of Nikes. I don't know if they were around then. <laughs> like, he's way too dressed to be doing this kind of deal. Oh. Like, that is the last outfit I ever want to see Clint Eastwood in: <laughs> shorts and Nikes. Well, he does have the option of his leisure suit gear. We see when he's harassing Scorpio in the <laughs> children's playground. You know, he's got those gargoyle sunglasses and the the, the green tracksuit. Of course, he's just come... Time is of the essence. He's just come from City Hall. He thought it was a normal police day. He was. He took his leisurely time to come up the steps of City Hall. And we said he's probably just come from a, a an affair with Chico's wife the night before. He's just come to the office. What's, what am I doing for the day? So, he wasn't... He's caught unprepared. So, he's just got his... His, his, his puke brown... Ugh, horrible. But he had enough time to get ahead of him. 
and climb up on that that bridge like it doesn't like he's out of breath like he just was like ah f- good timing yeah. he should have like he's just casually hanging out just watching and he's- plus he would have had to have probably gone over the bridge the same as the bus he's brought the bus already <laughs> how long do you think he was standing out on that overpass before the school bus came i personally think he's just been there maybe a minute or two yeah yeah me too what do you think trev uh yeah i I feel like he's just been there all day. It seems like it seems like somewhere that he would have gone to cry. Like he's this real man, and I think that's his crying bridge. That it just so it just was a coincidence that like he's he's because he's such a manly man. There's got to be at least a couple of minutes he takes out during the day just to let it all out, all the stuff that he's seen. You know. Yeah. One thing I, I've discovered today in this minute that I've never ever noticed before. This film came out in 1971, so it was at the dawn of a, of a new decade. There is one particular shot in this minute that is possibly the most 70s shot you can ever think of uh, for two reasons. It's um, actually for one reason, really, the colours. And it's the bit where Clint's on top of the bus wearing a brown suit on a yellow school bus. Brown and yellow. The only thing missing is like a horrible green that was my school uniform in primary school, <laughs> brown and yellow. I hated it. And it wasn't even compulsory, but my mum made me wear it. And now I feel like I'm venting like a therapy session. <laughs> Rick, when you were a security guard, did you ever wear a uh, three-piece brown 70s suit? <laughs> that would that might intimidate people. Oh, it would have been very intimidating. They gave us, for a uniform, dark slacks and a white button-down shirt with all sorts of identifying patches. I did have a badge, Ooh. although it was, I think, made of aluminum or something <laughs> very cheap like that. I never got the opportunity to show up to work wearing a brown suit with dark glasses, but that probably would have given off a different air <laughs> than the one they were trying to give. If you had an option, would you? If they went, here's the two outfits, would you choose the brown? Oh, <laughs> if they had given me the option, I absolutely would have shown up to work on some days wearing a brown suit like that, just to mix it up a little bit. But they would have said that if you take the brown suit, you've got to spend at least three minutes on a bridge, just sort of, <laughs> just in case anyone's hijacking kids on a bus. They call this suit the eagle. And you don't get paid for that. That's, like, <laughs> that's just the brown suit deal. Did you have to supply your own attitude or did, did they, they give you an attitude? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, no, I definitely supplied my own attitude. I was, this is an anecdote I like to tell about my time as a security guard. I was walking through one of the themed spaces at the park, and this was very uh, woodsy themed. So we had the the timber log flume and the haunted mine, and there was this kid, couldn't have been more than eight or nine years old, and he was on the log flume ride, and he figured he would try and impress his friends and stand up. And I saw him, and as I'm walking by, I shouted at him with such a loud and deep voice that the kid dropped like a stone and it made and i had to stifle my laughter to keep keep the air of authority about me speaking of air of authority would you have bought frank sinatra jumping onto the the top of the roof trent that'd be a stretch at that age um look i'd be oh. concerned about the toupee flipping up as he as he was going through the air the jumping, maybe getting up afterwards, definitely no, not. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. I can see him jumping, but perhaps not <laughs> getting up afterwards. <laughs> Falling off. 
I would like to see Sinatra and the ghost of the Rat Pack just like making some weird supernatural tag team. Just like, well, they could be like Jedi ghosts or yeah, something. <laughs> just blue. Watch, force ghosts, sorry. Watching um over, yeah. Because they could just go, they could transparently just go through the bus and then like Sinatra can come and get all the glory <laughs> and then at the end of it, he'd be like, I couldn't do it about a special friend and then he'll do this weird wink, but we're the only ones that can see the ghost. Am I rewriting the film? <laughs> I, I, shit, I, my brain just exploded with this idea. All of the Rat Pack were in the original Ocean's Eleven, right? Yeah, Bishop um, was he in it. Yeah, let's just say yes. So, in twenty years or so, thirty years, what they'll do—they'll re-edit whatever we're putting the Force Ghosts of the Rat Pack in, and we'll replace it with Brad Pitt and all those people from the sh- shitty remakes. <laughs> I think if they're going to put dead people in, they should just do ghost versions. Like they should be like really cheesy eighties, like poltergeist ghosts. Like they should be blue, transparent. Friendly. I don't Guys, I love how Scorpio absolutely shits himself when he sees Harry mm. on there. It's a brown suit. <laughs> and I love how our villain here, he's all over the place in the whole movie. Um, how he's scared all the time, you know, most famously in the, the stadium scene. No, 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 no. And with the brute, though possibly we talked about him enjoying that, that punishment. But often you don't see villains who who will readily just be childish and take it. You know, it's all Kevin Spacey, calm, cool, collected, and taking the pain they're given. Did you, do you like that, Trev, about Scorpio? Do I like Kevin Spacey? No, not so much anymore. <laughs> I used to I used to be a fan, but uh, kind of not... When you find out that he's a real-life villain, yeah. yeah, I don't know about that. Well, let's think of even Alan Rickman. Obviously, he pretends to be that guy. Like, oh, no, my name's John, don't hurt me. But he's... Even at the end, he's not like resorting to pleading and crying. Do you, do you like Scorpio's, Andy Robinson's range in this movie, Rick? I definitely appreciate it. I'll say that much. Uh, I really am not a huge fan of those simpering villains. No? Just, if they're gonna go out and be evil, I don't like for them to crumble in the face of adversity because it really undermines everything they've done so far. Like this is the guy that was sitting on top of a high rise in the first scene of this movie, sniping people in uh, in roofs, top pools. That's inherently very scary and intimidating. And then the more we see of him, the less intimidating he gets. And I, I'm not a huge fan of that idea. What about because he's his plans are coming undone and he doesn't realize he's gone against Clint Eastwood, which would be intimidating to anybody in or in or out of brown suit. So maybe his <laughs> maybe sort of empathetic because you kind of think, geez, if that was me and I had a school bus full of kids and a man in a brown suit jumping on my bus, like I think I would like digress back to being a three year old as well, like. In the novelization, yeah. he deliberately requests Harry be this final bag man, but that didn't make it from the first Milius version of the script. So, yeah, they've changed the dynamics a little bit there. Um, maybe in this version of events, uh, he was just expecting the AV guy would be the guy delivering the bag. <laughs> Has anyone here seen Cobra? Yeah. With Stallone? Yeah. Yeah, a long time ago. I don't care. I don't shove here is the best line. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the blurbs on the VHS describes the bad guys because it's not one guy in particular, is it? No, I don't think Can't so. Can't remember. And it goes, 
a vicious serial killer killing arrogantly and with the savagery of a beast escape from hell. Is that Scorpio, just given what you've just said, or is Scorpio more just, just another asshole who woke up hating the world? Oh, I definitely think he's more of column B in that scenario. Yeah, pretty much. You know what was a better, speaking of Cobra, do you know what the superior thing with the title Cobra was? The short-lived TV series with Michael Dudikoff called Cobra, where he was a former Navy SEAL who became a crime fighter. And his boss in that was James Tolkien. Oh. The, the little bald guy from Back to the, the Future. Yeah. And Serpico. And when that show started, I thought it was a, a spin-off of the Stallone film. You cried uh, that night when you found out it wasn't. Oh, it was great. Dudikoff was his own man. Only in the 80s can you have action film called The Cobra. And it's not about the cobra. Like, it's not a CGI cobra. It's just... <laughs> but then we have bullshit titles of films like Man on Fire. I watched that for <laughs> two hours. There was no fucking man on fire in the whole thing. I wanted to see a guy set alight, a stuntman running around at least for 20 seconds, but nothing. It's like in The Simpsons where they walk out of a naked lunch and they're like, <laughs> yeah. I could think of two. What's the line? Well, misleading. What about you You guys? Your favourite movie, Mad Max, would you describe him as mad? Or is he just a little bit angry? Because... Oh, he's definitely mad at at least one point in each film. I mean, it delivers there. Um, I think the first film is the one that plays the loosest with the title, but for every movie afterwards, Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road, you know, there are Road Warriors in Mad Max 2. He does go beyond Thunderdome (laughs) in that third movie, and then they're on the Fury Road the entire time in the fourth movie, so... Mad Max does a pretty good job at delivering on the titles, much in, much in the same vein as a movie like Cowboys and Aliens or Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> yeah. What happens if uh, the movie was called Max Mad, like Maximum Mad? Do you reckon that would have just changed the whole premise? <laughs> Maximum Madness. It sounds like the Stephen King that... Um, Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> that's right. With the tr- that's, that's one of the trucks, isn't it? An ACDC. That is one with the trucks. Oh, it's amazing. And it also, there's like an ATM kills. I think Stephen King. I think Stephen King's cameo is he gets killed by an ATM machine at the start. He directed that, didn't he? Yeah, the ATM calls him an asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever I hear Mad Max, I think more, what's that that ride at um, Luna Park? What's that like? Uh, Mad Mouse. Mad Mouse, okay, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I thought you meant the scenic railway, but obviously... Now, guys, let's let's get a bit let's get a bit symbolic, right? We're heading out of the city, you know, where Harry, where Scorpio has all these, you know, civilization, all these rights, Miranda rights, and we're going underneath a trestle, approaching, you know, the Wild West. What else is wooden in the Wild West, Trav? Uh, Clean Eastwood. True, but keep on going. Uh, horses. If you steal horses, what happens to you? You <laughs> Go to jail? You get hung. A scaffolding. Oh. Are we talking about Red Dead Redemption now? Or? Yes. <laughs> anyway, the tra- <laughs> I like the imagery of the trestle uh, of a bridge being a-, a scaffolding for someone shortly about to be metaphorically hung. You want me on that trestle. You need me on that trestle. 
that bus driver's face, the way she's grimacing like that, that's so wild. Like, what was the, like, what did she do to psych herself up to get to that face? Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Do you reckon that she's like, you know how their Warner Brothers artists used to have mirrors and then they would like do these crazy faces to do the wild face? <laughs> do you think she stood in front of a lot of mirrors and just sort of, yep, got it, nailed Probably, it? Probably, yeah. Because that's pretty spot on. Like, I've never been in a kidnap situation where I'm driving a school bus. <laughs> Hell, I've never been to San Francisco, but I'm pretty sure I'd make that face as well. <laughs> She's trying to mix Sideshow Bob with um, Buster <laughs> Keaton. That's a good mix. <laughs> now, when Harry or Frank Sinatra, whoever, jumps down onto the bus, this movie, we never have a lot of point of view shots um, from Harry's perspective. Now, today, I think it goes without saying that it would definitely have a shot of Harry jumping down from his perspective. Most of the shots we have of Clint here are sort of always from below looking up in hero worship, this scene in particular, and also we think um, at the bank, you know, when he's delivering his his famous line. So, that's one change I've detected. This movie doesn't have a lot of real action scenes, uh, Rick. I think this is a movie, if they film today, they do it quite differently, you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, he would be firing that gun a lot more than he already is. That would be one major change. Also, there'd be so many cuts that you wouldn't know what the hell's going on. It would just be like shots of the yeah. wheels more than the action and close-ups of Clint's face. On the audio commentary for um, Bridge Over the River Kwai... David Lean talks about he thought about putting a camera on the train, you know, the train at the end that's going to be blown up because he thought it would provide some great visuals. But his editor and he talked it over before filming and said, Who's, whose perspective would it be from? Because um, a train obviously doesn't have sentience. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think this is quite well filmed, don't you, Trav, this little bit? Yeah, it's amazing. Still holds up. Sorry for this version here where the subtitles are completely wrong, where he just keeps saying, drop your gun. And then it says, subtitles supplied by avsubtitles.com. I don't remember them saying that at all. So, uh, he'd blow his brains out, it just said then. And then, it just shot a, and then it showed a picture of the kid on the bus crying, <laughs> which should be my Facebook profile photo. Does anyone have a favourite... Um for lack of a better word, moving roof scene in a movie. Ooh. Like where someone's, the, the good guy's on the top and the guy's shooting like sort of maybe in speed or speed. Terminator, yep, or Under Siege. What about in the, um? what's the third prequel Star Wars? Uh, what's that uh, one? Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith for the high ground. Oh, yeah. <laughs> high ground, Anakin, don't you know? Do you have a favourite, <laughs> do you have a favourite moving roof sort of scene? It comes to mind, Rick? Oh, absolutely. The entire final chase in Mad Max 2, yeah. where you've got all of the people up on top of the tanker and the vehicles are swarming around underneath them and you've got Vernon Wells on the back of one of the cars and he's shooting arrows up at Virginia Hay. And she <laughs> and then there's the the other guy that lights himself up on fire. Like there's a, there's a lot of good times spent on top of vehicles in the Mad Max series and that one definitely stands out to me. Well, that sort of gave that scene definitely gave it its, um, you know, praise for some of the greatest stunts ever shot on film. Vernon Wells is the the commander guy, right? I got the girl, John. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, he's Bennett. 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 I love listening to your piss ant guards t- talk tough. It makes me laugh. If Matrix were here, he'd laugh too. <laughs> Here's a Mad Max question. If the world did fall into the, the, the fallout nuclear apocalyptic world, would you move to Australia and think you'd have a pretty good job of survival because you've seen all those Mad Max movies so many times? Do you reckon you could survive more than five years? Oh, I reckon I'd be able to find my way around for sure. My ultimate plan if the end of the world comes is I want to open up my own Thunderdome. That's my <laughs> my dream. Go down to the hardware store, get a bunch of metal, build myself a dome, put up a sign, say, Thunderdome's now open. Come on in. Would you, would you be fighting? Oh, no, I'd be running the place. <laughs> You'd be holding all the wires to do the... the- Crouching tiger, hidden dragon. I'd give myself a judge's robe and a big old stick, and I'd give the opening uh, speech before people come in and settle the differences. <laughs> Would you do a different speech each time? So you're kind of like the MC, basically. Oh, yeah. Well, you've got to tailor it to your audience. If you've got the same people coming every night, they don't want to hear the same speech every time. That gets a little too ritualistic. That comes down the road once you've established yourself. Like, Because everybody comes for the murder, but you know, you want to warm them up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you had to send someone to into exile like uh, Max gets sent, what sort of mask would you make them wear on the back of the horse or camel? <laughs> uh, I love the giant mascot head they used in the actual Beyond Thunderdome yeah. movie, but if I had to, I'd probably go out and raid a bunch of the local uh, high schools that we have around here, and I'd steal all the large mascot heads, the big foam <laughs> ridiculous looking things because they're always shaped like animals and caricatures and things like that that way you could send people out and they could be identifiable yeah <laughs> like oh here's the guy that that got sent away from that school and there's the person that got sent away from that school and they would look ridiculous with these giant foam heads <laughs> we have a local racing stadium called thunderdome don't we Trent? yeah uh yeah, the Calder Park race. No, Calder. What was it? Avalon Thunderdome. I think there used to be commercials on TV for these for these car races. Oh, that's spectacular! Right near, um, actually, right near Little River, where they shot a lot of the first Mad Max. Yeah, it's this raceway. Was it deliberately named that or I don't marketed? Know. I don't know. Thunderdome, actually, but it was Saturday night Avalon Thunderdome. Be there. <laughs> Was that really speedy voice and really nasally Australian horrible thing? Its other claim to fame was it had a Guns N' Roses concert in the 90s, oh, is that, that right? No, that was Calder Park. Oh, okay, sorry. At the yeah. Thunderdome. <laughs> GNR at the Thunderdome. Yeah! What? Take that one to heart. <laughs> Are you ready to rock? Oh, man. Now, apparently the pieces of iron on the top of the bus are called metallic luggage skids. You ever heard that word, guys, before? Skids? Uh, skid, bro- like skid Row, I've heard. Skid Row. They supported Guns N' Roses at that gig, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a word for you guys to all take on board. I, I have, yeah. But just in American stuff, we don't use that. No. Well, okay. I, I think we just call them railing here or something railing. Like In that. Australia, we just chuck luggage. Some guy will be like, whatever, mate, and just chucks your luggage, like, back at you. It's like, stick it on your knee, you wanker, like... They wouldn't put luggage on the top of the bus. Hey, Rick, do you do you see Harry as a guardian? Do you see him as a saviour jumping down onto that bus? Mm. Is he a guardian that San Francisco needs? 
I don't want to go right out and say that I see him as a guardian. I see him more as, I mean, I see him more as like a force of, you know, unrelenting justice, not so much a, a savior, more of a, a hunter. Okay. Yes. He's very, very intimidating, very scary almost. Like, I don't see him as, hooray, here comes Superman <laughs> flying down to save Lois Lane. He's more of a, oh, I don't know, uh, the hunter from Bambi, <laughs> to make a Disney movie reference. He's, he's, a, he's, a nefar- he's a nefarious, very intimidating figure, and it's scary, the fact that he just drops in seemingly out of nowhere. If he wasn't a cop, do you reckon that the roles would be reversed? That, like, Harry would just be some vigilante Batman or just a serial killer straight up just because he has to get his fix of being heroic or killing people? Isn't that what the Death Wish movies are all about? (laughs) Bronson. (laughs) They're glorified snuff films. I mean, if you think Dirty Harry's fascist and irresponsible, then them and... I haven't seen John Wick yet, but um, Death Wish and the Taken movies are just... The only question is, did enough people die for him to get his his uh, his daughter back? They're like dad fantasy movies where dads are like, I'll kill anyone that takes my daughter. And then they can just like live it through Liam Neeson. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I'll do as well. <laughs> but Except Death Wish has that for the first two. And then in the third one, it's his best friend who gets killed. And then the fourth one, he's step. Daughter gets killed and then... Just back to drug dealers, isn't it? And then it's the drug dealers. And then, yeah, in the fifth one, his new fiancé gets killed by her ex-mobster husband. Is the third one the one where he just gets a machine gun? Oh, yeah. And just plows everyone down? That's the best part of the film. And you're just kind of like, well, he's not even trying anymore. (laughs) Like, he's just like, ah, there's only ten minutes left of this film. Just give me a machine gun. I'll just finish the rest off. Has anyone here seen High Plains Drifter? No. I know the Beastie Boys song, but that's about it. You can sort of see he... he, Well, he comebacks. He's more like a ghost apparition. Is he the former sheriff? (laughs) Or is he um, a brother of the the sheriff that was killed? And he's just... He's he's the wind. There's no... He's amoral, not immoral. He's just come to dispense justice. But there's no... There's no sense that he has moral righteousness righteousness on his side. But... um, a movie we haven't talked about before on this podcast is A Perfect World. You guys seen that? The Kevin mm-hmm. Costner one? Where Clint plays like um, a governor in Texas or something that has to track down uh, Kevin Costner, who's you know kidnapped a kid. And earlier on in his criminal career, Kevin Costner, um, he decided to put him in jail for a, just a, a joyride he took. He thought, I'm good. the way to handle criminality is you've got to punish them early. And it you know, there's some speculation in the movie that that, no, we need a softer approach, more rehabilitation of younger people when they commit crimes. We can't just throw them behind the slammer. Before before Clint's character realises that at the end of the film when he meets Kevin and realises, oh, it's the young kid I put away earlier on, he's still gung-ho about, you know, the cop's got to follow his intuition. If he thinks there's a crime, he's got to prosecute the criminal without respect to laws. His intuition is enough. And Laura Dern says, that's horseshit. And Clint goes, that horseship is responsibility. That's the guy who has sleepless nights. The guy who has ulcers. If this thing goes bloody, which it will, the mayor loses votes, 
Me, I'm the guy who has to answer to the victim's family. It's pretty real, man. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that script is written in a, like a T-bone steak, like on butcher paper. Because <laughs> like all Clint Eastwood's like writing, or did he write that one? No, Clint really hasn't written any of his scripts. Oh, He's I been thought he, he just directs. Pretty much. He likes to find the projects, though, and um, develop them, but he generally doesn't have much of a say in them. Yeah. Because uh, everything... I, I don't know. There just seems to be such a Clint Eastwood brand. I thought that he was just typing them out with grease, barbecue grease, or the, <laughs> whatever a real man does. Trent, do you think a police officer would ever endanger the lives of kids like Harry does? I don't know. Get the job done. Even a modern, modern sort of SWAT team, they... Definitely not now. There'd be there'd be too many uh, PR, sorry, and HR ramifications. Surely, like I mean, everything is so documented now in any sort of procedure and process. But even so, people that are working inside the system, they know ways to circumvent the system. And I mean, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but you know, especially here in America, the there when police officers get into trouble. The other police officers around them close ranks to support them. So if there was a cop that went out of his way to do something along these lines, I feel like there would be other people around him that would understand where he was coming from, sense his motives, and be able to, I guess, shield him from the negative ramifications. Like there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening in America from the 70s on through to today where. You know, it's a it's a complicated business being a cop. It's very complicated. Yeah, is that because of Dirty Harry? Of course it is. You think everyone wants to be the Clint Eastwood and they're like, guys, just let me do it. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll blame it on Dirty Harry. <laughs> it's like those um, people that watch the Dead Poet Society and all the teachers thought that would be this cool, like, <laughs> Robin Williams kind of dude who can, like, do voices. Yeah. <laughs> is it like that? Probably. <laughs> I got a quote here, guys. Harry was a man of purpose. Once he decided on something, there were no extraneous movements. Harry was a determined soul. Nothing was going to stop him when his mind was made up. Harry always walks straight to the problem. He defies everything you're taught to be frustrated by in bureaucracy. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. He walks straight to the very specific trestle that he knows that Scorpio is going to drive underneath. He walks straight to the uh, the bank robber, of course, going through the mayhem that is yeah. created with his gunshots. Do you think Batman, when he does his Batman voice to disguise that he's Bruce Wayne, do you think he's doing a bad Clint Eastwood impersonation? <laughs> it's very gravelly and like, swear to me! Like it's... Um... Do you guys notice in this scene, unfortunately, they go past the go-karting place twice? No. Do you reckon they should have stopped? <laughs> like, had a race? This is the first continuity error that I've picked up in this movie, like, in terms of shots. You know what I mean? That type of continuity error. Um, I'm quite disappointed. Rick, did you pick that up? I, I picked up that they are going by the go-karts. I didn't notice that they went by it twice i'm scrubbing through the minute right now me too oh yeah when they go in to sideswipe the bug they're they're passing the uh go-kart place again 
Would go-karts have been a relatively new thing in the early 70s? Even back then, if they're new, they're still out in the middle of nowhere, like sort of near industrial parks. and that. Well, that's where they basically are for us now, aren't they, Trent? Like Pretty much. Yeah. Do you reckon they were around back then, Trav? Probably. The, the banana splits, I think, were on go-karts a lot. So, yeah. And they were like from the like 1800s or something. <laughs> so... Well, there's billy carts, you know, were a long-term thing. Oh, maybe that's what they're on. I would like to see this chase, like, everyone just gets off the bus and then they all get into go-karts and that's, like, how, like, it just ends on this sick go-karting, like, into the desert, doing mad flips. I don't know what you do with (laughs) go-karts. Because they're both really tall guys. I think we're being deprived of an alternative ending to this movie where instead of crashing into the gravel pit like they do, they crash through the chain link fence into the go-kart thing and then Harry and Scorpio go from the bus onto a couple of go-karts <laughs> and they take the chase small scale. Yeah, yeah. I, it'd be even more funny if there was actually a race on and Clint not only catches Scorpio but wins and then like people are cheering, he saves the orphanage or whatever's going on. <laughs> Scorpio's really got the kids' day, you know, their outing in mind. He's giving them options of the ice cream factory, go-karting. Later we see there's a fishing hole they could all go to. He's um, he's not such a bad killer. As a kid, I love going through tunnels. So I think going underneath those, like, San Francisco, that rainbow tunnel, I would have been like, that's the best type, best thing that's happened to me. Until, until I saw Clint Eastwood in a brown suit. <laughs> Well, that, that tunnel has now been renamed the Robin Williams Tunnel, I think. Really? <laughs> really? The, formerly the <laughs> Waldol Tunnel, because obviously it's the entrance to Marin County where he used to live. Do they play Robin Williams stand-up when you go in there? It's all echoey, like a uh, ghost? They just play him as Popeye, and particularly the <laughs> underwhelming scene where he does the twister punch and it's just his arm turning. <laughs> uh, I remember as a kid going through that tunnel once uh, when I was about six years old and I remember the rainbow colouring really, really vividly and thinking, wow, this looks incredible. Because we didn't have any tunnels here in Australia, really, um, that were any more than a couple of metres until... Yeah. We're pretty tunnelers. The 90s or 2000s. We are pretty tunnelers. Unless you go to Sydney, they're they're all underneath there now. But They're all mole people. Yeah. Of course, we're all born from tunnels. This... This Rick, um, I've, this is pretty much everything I've got to say about this minute. Do you have any, any last words? Well, I wanted to touch on something outside the movie real quick, if you'll please. indulge me. Yes, please. Because I am an American, and I have spent the last several years talking about a piece of media that is very distinctly Australian, being the Mad Max series, and you are a group of Australians talking about a very distinctly American piece of cinema. And I have to wonder what it's like on your end, looking at something that is in theory, culturally different and how that's been for you. In Australia, we all grew up with American stuff. So like, we feel like we live there vicariously. (laughs) Like nobody actually watches Australian content. Like Uh, Australian media here. Yeah. We, a lot of Australians don't ingest it. The, the, the American content is primarily what we've always grown up with and and whatever. So, yeah, it, do, it does certainly feel like second nature to us. So, yeah, it's it's funny that it's probably more of a novelty if someone's watching an Australian thing like a Mad Max or whatever. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we get very proud. 
We do get very proud, Trav, yeah. Obviously, Rick, we it brings up political and um, legal things that aren't as familiar to us, like the mayor directing the police on how to handle a criminal investigation. And we're thinking, oh, shouldn't... In America, I know kidnapping is a federal offence. I know this is a fantasy. <laughs> this is a movie. But the idea that mayors are essentially PR people in our municipal system. They have no power. Here you have mayors that are you know, elected in competitive elections and judges are elected to us too. We have this idea that DAs are elected in America and like they're actually responsible. They're not just public servants. And so we have a lot of legitimate funny questions about how all that works. Um, obviously, we don't have many... I suppose we've had our fair share of serial killers in this country, Trent, but it's always like three or four people over 10 years. Not, It's not... I don't know. Yeah, yeah, coming from Adelaide. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Adelaide. <laughs> Bloody hell. It's known as the murder capital and the church capital of uh, Australia. Really. I'm surprised it got out, like, alive. Like, I, the amount of times I've almost been stabbed there. It's out of control. Children's television and serial killers, South Australia. Yeah. Welcome to. <laughs> they also love their wine. They, they do like, love their wine. Oh, have you been in the Barossa? You're <laughs> like, well, if I survive today, maybe I'll go. I don't know. But Rick, mm-hmm. here's a question. Do you know the names of any police in your city or, or state? Like, do they, are there any famous policemen in your country? We have a few famous criminals, but the idea that we could name, we know some bad egg cops in New South Wales and corruption and so forth, but we don't really, do you know any policemen like in the media? Are there- Honestly, the police that end up in the media they don't often have their names go down into infamy. They're on the news, they're involved in a story, and then almost as soon as they come up, they seem to fade very quickly back into the woodwork. And that's probably by design in order to protect them from from retaliation. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all I've got for this minute, guys. Um, Can I... Can we entice you to come back for another minute Rick or is time our enemy I think I've got another minute in me <laughs> right many thanks well thank you for joining me Trent thank you I'll have to try and persuade you to come back and Trav sure you come back for another minute yeah I'm not going anywhere Scorpio's about to go somewhere we'll catch you next time on Dirty Harry Minute Come and catch me, Scorpio